Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. Hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We're broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in D.C., and I'm your host, Kiko Bourne. Lunch Agenda is a podcast that schools you on undercovered parts of the food system that I think we all need to know more about. We've had series about food access, food investment, food distribution, and how to educate about food. All those interviews are on your favorite podcast app, and behind-the-scenes info and episode picks are at kikosfoodnews.com or kikobuff on Instagram. You've tuned into the third episode of our current series, all about institutional food, from the challenges to serving good food at scale in settings that lack competition, to the huge opportunity institutional food procurement offers for supporting the kind of food production that sustains the environment and those who produce the food. So far, we've explored hotel food and hospital food, And I've reserved the last two episodes of this series for an institution that's possibly the least transparent place that millions of meals are served every day, and that's correctional facilities. And I did say millions of meals every day. America's current epidemic of mass incarceration finds about 2.8 million individuals hidden in prisons and other correctional facilities every day. Yet this group, which on the outside would present significant buying power, is often ignored or forgotten in our food system. For one, we can't take pictures of meals. We can take pictures of meals served at school cafeterias or in hospitals, but that clearly won't fly in a prison setting. And relatedly, it's worth mentioning that this topic was harder to find guests for than any other I've ever done. I wasn't able to get responses from guests who are employed by correctional facilities, and so it leads me to wonder, what do they have to hide? But I did find two incredible guests. Um, I found guests who have lived on the inside and who are doing nutrition justice work from the outside. So today we're going to hear from Halim Flowers about the lived experience of eating while incarcerated. Halim was released just this past March after being behind bars for 22 years in facilities from the East Coast to the West Coast. We'll hear about how he was affected by the food offered to him in prison and why he's especially worried about adolescents whose bodies and brains develop on the inside. We'll also hear from Kanav Kathuria about the Farm to Prison Project, which is using food to change the consciousness of people in his Baltimore community toward those who are incarcerated. But before we start chatting with Halim and Kanav, let's, let's catch up on the week in food system headlines with a little Kiko's Food News. Headline one for today. The millennial generation is shaking up old drink categories, pressuring brewers and manufacturers to come up with new flavors and tastes. For example, this spring, with crossover drinkers ages 21 to 34 in mind, Magic Hat Brewery will roll out a grape ale, half beer, half wine, that they're calling Duvine. 
That company hopes it will transcend categories and redefine itself with a demographic that will soon make up over 50% of all alcohol buyers. And then there's Coca-Cola, which is planning to launch Coca-Cola coffee in 25 markets by the end of the year to appeal to consumers who want less sugar in their drinks but more caffeine. Call me a millennial. I have to say both of those sound reasonably good, so it'll be interesting to see how those crossovers um, fare in the marketplace. Second headline. We food justice advocates hear a lot about how farmers markets have come to redeem SNAP benefits, about 3,600 nationwide do by today's count, but their redemption of almost 16 million benefits at, at farmers markets in 2017 pales in comparison to redemption of SNAP at grocery stores, which across 51,000 locations redeemed nearly 53 billion in SNAP benefits last year. The USDA has refused to share, historically, the individual SNAP sales data from those food retailers with the public, although the outcome of arguments before, before the Supreme Court this session could raise the curtain on that information. So that case, which is called Food Marketing Institute versus Argus Leader Media, could be a chance to shine a light on just how much companies like Kroger and Walmart and others are benefiting financially from the SNAP program while also employing many SNAP users themselves. A good one to watch. Final headline for today. San Francisco already has an automated coffee shop with robot baristas, a salad-making robot named Sally, and a burger-making robot. So the latest on the scene is a giant smoothie-making robot named Chef B, only in San Francisco. Chef B is an automated kiosk capable of making more than three dozen 12-ounce smoothies in an hour. And he comes with refrigeration systems, robotic arms, and 20 temperature-controlled ingredient dispensers. Unlike human smoothie makers, he works around the clock, and he remembers everyone's smoothie preference based on their previous app orders. So I don't know how this makes you feel. Does it give you hope or does it give you the heebie-jeebies? Um, I'm more in the latter category. But things are happening with technology and food for sure. And with that, I leave you. We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'll bring Halim and Kanav right into the conversation so we can hear about this topic of food in correctional facilities. Please stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. This is Kiko, your host, and you've tuned into an episode about the state of nutrition in prisons and why this is, why this is a social justice imperative and the work that's happening to improve it. I want to bring my guests right into this conversation, first by introducing Halim Flowers, who actually lives right around the corner from our studio at the Line Hotel. Halim has said, quote, I was born and raised in D.C. during the crack era, pre-gentrification, when the nation's capital was the murder capital, end quote. Halim has published 10 books that he uses for youth outreach work, 
and with his partner Kristen Adair co-founded the Unchained Media Collective, a storytelling and advocacy organization that creates bridges between incarcerated and formerly incarcerated young people and the public. Halim, welcome. Thanks Great for being here. here. Yeah. I'm, I'm just very grateful that you're willing to be a witness for myself and the listeners who haven't seen the inside of, of prison cafeterias or commissaries or cells um, as we explore this topic. So can you tell us, let's just kind of start with a question that's probably in, in listeners' minds. I know it was in mine. Just quickly, why you came to be incarcerated at age 16 and what led you to be released and return home to D.C. two months ago at age 38? At the age of 16, uh, in December of 1996, I accompanied another individual to uh, a, a dwelling, and the individual that I was with took it upon himself to uh, kill someone, shoot someone and kill him. And the ironic thing was that I, didn't, I wasn't aware of the, the, the statue of felony murder at the time that once you enter the dwelling, no matter whether it's your intent or not to commit a crime, anything that the individual does in the midst of the felony it becomes you become accountable for it. So what's ironic about my case was that the individual who was actually indicted and charged as the actual shooter had the case dismissed against him. It was never tried for defense, and I went to trial, and they um, convicted me as an aider and a better and gave me 40 years of life and 20 years of life sentence. So the only reason that I'm here today is because D.C. legislators passed what's known as the Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act of 2016, a law that was enacted on April 4th, 2017. And this law allowed anyone who committed offense under the age of 18 after serving 20 years in prison to come back and be considered for release. Right. And the 22 years you spent behind bars brought you to facilities that ranged from D.C. jail to a couple in Virginia, to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, to New Jersey, to Atlanta, West Virginia, all the way out to California, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so 11 total, I think you told me, mm-hmm. when all was said and done. How different was the food across those settings? The food, it differs from like state, like a state like Virginia, Commonwealth state, they feed you very little, whereas though uh, the, in the federal institution, because once they close down Lawton, which was a local prison for D.C. Uh, incarcerated people, then they, 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 um, we went to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So one thing I noticed about the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the food can differ based upon the security level. So the more high security level where guys are serving longer sentences are more uh, expected to be more violent, more aggressive, they serve you less food. Whereas though when you go down to the medium security institutions, like I was in in New Jersey and uh, West Virginia, they serve you more food, but still the quality of the nutrition of food is poor. So that's that's interesting. It's something I wanted to touch on in our conversation today because I've heard that sometimes less food and deprivation can lead to more violence because people are more desperate or more un, more angry or, or even you know potentially fighting over that food. Mm-hmm. Did it not have the reverse effect in those high security settings? Exactly, but the um the irony of people who run the penal institutions they enact and actualize policies that are oxymoronic so we those of us who have common sense would think okay you give people less food they'd be more frustrated but they still keep that going on and what it does is when you go to the high security uh federal institutions it's a lot of institutional lockdowns because there's a lot of gang and race violence so when you get the institutional lockdown, 
you locked in the cell 24 hours a day, and then they put your food in styrofoam trays, which your portions are even more reduced. But now they're containing you inside of the cell for 24 hours a day, and you only come out for a shower 10 minutes a day. And were you ever in that situation, Helene? Uh, numerous, especially where I just left the institution at USP Atwater in California. We were locked down six months out of the year. In your own cell, only out for a shower quickly. Only out for a shower, 10 minutes. So I learned in, in my research kind of, you know, corollary to the differences that you experience between high and medium and low security that it really, that nutrition standards at state and local facilities are governed by a whole patchwork of state laws and local policies and court decisions that creates great inconsistency. So, you know, you, I, you come across some um, jails and prisons that, that require low-fat or low-sodium diets, and then you see others that are really focused on giving inmates a certain calor- caloric, you know, minimum a day. Um, and I know that all detention facilities must have a licensed dietitian um, in order for their menus to be accredited by the American Correctional Association. Um, and I know that that association recommends three meals a day, but that that's not always what's served. How often were you always offered three meals a day? I mean, I think it sounds like maybe when it's the one styrofoam container, not. But how often was three meals a day the norm? In the federal system, even when I was in Virginia briefly for two years, in the federal system, you always get three meals a day. However, when we lock down, um, one of those meals is going to be just a bag lunch and a breakfast with just an apple, um, maybe a, a little plastic bag of milk and a, and, a, and a handful of cereal. And then at lunch, it's going to be uh, just a box, like this, this cardboard box that they give you that's wrapped up in plastic, which just have maybe some animal crackers, um, four slices of white bread, and just a, a, a little small package of peanut butter and jelly. So you don't get it. You only get one hot meal at night. Right. Right. And you said a bag of milk. You know, there's all these security uh, measures that I've encountered in this research. But why is a milk carton not safe? Um, I guess they said that the milk cars can be used as, as projectiles. So now they put the milk in these small, clear plastic bags. Okay. It's things that, that I would never even think. And the water, too. The water comes in those small little plastic bag wow okay so did you feel that you had enough food in jet like throughout the, the the years or were there many days weeks or months where you felt undernourished when i was in definitely during the institution lockdowns and definitely in the high security institutions you know uh especially in california the federal institution in california but when i was in the mediums like in new jersey and west virginia the food was, it was, it was a large quantity of it, but the quality of it was poor because you never get fresh fruits and vegetables. Right. So everything is canned and, and overcooked. And right, right. And so you clearly, you know, you've talked about how you yearned for fresher and healthier food. Mm-hmm. What coping mechanisms did you develop, if, if there are any that come to mind? It's ironic that you asked that because, like, today I'm fasting for Ramadan. So right. one of the uh, coping, mechanisms that, uh, coping mechanisms that I've learned was just to fast, to pray, and even to exercise, even though that you had um, poor diet, to, I was fortunate to have family, loved ones who could put money on my account so I could order healthy things 
from commissary, which now I know that I'm in society, is not healthy because of the packaging that the fish and stuff was coming in. But at least I, I could make the best options that I could with what I was working with inside of the institution. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, we'll talk about commissaries in a second. Um, so you've talked a little bit about how the D.C. Department of Corrections, where you spent some time, has a contract with Aramark, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's that's something that's you know widespread that prisons are um, forging private contracts with huge food service companies. So, can you tell us a little bit about um, what you think the effects of those kind of contracts were? What's ironic about the Irma, right? Since I've been released, I've been invited to speak at a lot of prominent uh, speaking engagements, and I've attended like art. Uh, galleries and things and Aramont happens to be um, catering these events and what I've learned since I've been home that Aramont is one of if not the richest and most high scale food uh, hospitality company in the world but yet when uh, DC Department of Corrections contract with them they get the very lowest grade of service so every day at lunchtime in the DC Department of Corrections those who are incarcerated get served lunch meat sandwiches every day you said you know white bread bologna a spoonful of mustard and some high sodium potato chips, a handful right? of high sodium potato chips that's not even in a bag and so when a cafeteria is privatized with mm-hmm. airmark or any other company there is this perception that that the food quality can go down to a point that's so bad that it might be intentional so that people, as you were, are forced to spend money at the commissary. And just so that listeners understand what we mean when we're talking about a commissary, you know, you can think of it as like a small company store. Mm. So where incarcerated people can purchase food with their own own funds. Mm. Um, Halim, you, you mentioned to me inventory that you most often came across there, including chips, ramen noodles, fish and aluminum vacuum packs, mm. which... As people, it's a more obvious one, maybe, you know, cans wouldn't be um, adequately secure. Cookies and honey buns. Mm -hmm. Everyone I talked to, you know, who had been exposed to the commissary inventory in any setting said it was similarly high sugar, high sodium. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's ironic, actually, because this is kind of what it sounds like how convenience stores used to be, but there's been so much progress in convenience stores. Um, we've actually only in the gentrified areas, not not in the poor. War seven and war eight still have poor convenience stores. Good options. point. Good right. point. Yeah, I think that nationally, that's that's a journey that's just beginning. Right. Um, and and you told me, Halim, that one excuse that would come up with the commissaries of why they couldn't carry fruit and vegetables is because then the inmates could make wine with it or other distilled spirits. Right. Um, so what did you get from commissaries? You know, you said you saved money from your family who was generous enough to, to fund that, mm-hmm. you know, you, so you said you got fish. Um, was there anything else that was worth buying? Um, I just had ordered one for my uh, best friend today who's still uh, incarcerated juvenile life. And we was online ordering it for him and, um, you know, the fish, salmon, mackerel and all that. But then you get like nut mix certain like little trail mix granola bars but sometimes you, you get junk food too because when you get the sweet tooth it's not like out here now i can eat dates and strawberries you want something sweet so you get candy bars you get cookies you know and um those are the things that i used to get you know sometimes i would get 
most of the time I would get healthy options, but then sometimes I would get unhealthy options. But if I could have ordered dates or cherries or grapes, I would have ordered that. So Sure, sure. And so you would exercise to make your body feel good in other ways that you right. had control over. Right. Um, did you ex- observe the prices to be exploitative in the commissary? Because I've also heard that companies who run them charge extremely unfair pricing, especially when you're working maybe in the, in that setting for earning, you know, a certain amount of very low cents per hour. Um, and then, you know, you look at a 50 cent ramen packet and that's out of whack with, um, the reality of wages versus prices in the outside. What's ironic, what I saw was over 22 years of incarceration was that the prices on commissary, for one, it's not like out here where you can go to Whole Foods, you can go to Safeway. You, so you compelled to just shop from one outlet. And then what I saw was that, okay, I'm a honey man. I love honey. When I initially came to prison in 97, honey was a dollar and 25 cents. A, 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 maybe a 12-ounce jar of honey. Now it's three seventy-five, And what I saw was that the wages for prison labor was still no more than 46 50 cents an hour. That's a high end. The low end, 23 cents an hour, especially if you don't have your GED. And most uh, incarcerated people being youthful offenders without high school education GED. So the prices of commissary, even stamps, were constantly rising, but the prison pay was stagnant. So we know that in a world economy, this 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 could never happen because the the the, uh, the market would for the, the goods would, would not move. But what it does is they know that people are gonna put more pressure on their relatives to send them money, or sell narcotics while they're in prison to make money to the more richer or more well-off uh, incarcerated people. So it's a lot of pressures that go on inside of the institutions that make guys do things illegal to make money just to be able to eat right and, you know, to be able to email and things of that nature to communicate with their loved ones. Hmm. Wait, explain to me, how does, what do they need to do to be able to email? Emails are five cents a minute. Okay. So okay. most guys in prison are not great typers, so they, you pecking with one hand, the minutes add up. Right. And I just want to say that I have heard about prison systems in other countries, such as in Scandinavia, where it's not, it's not this way. They, you know, a lot of those prisons have in-unit kitchens where the residents can boil water, and the commissary is like an actual grocery store. There's fresh produce there, mm-hmm. um, and and you know that's just like the type of structural difference that hints at a very different way society views and values those who are in that situation, um, and they they have the dignity of buying and preparing food, like you know, as if they were on the outside. Halim, you mentioned wages, and I know that you had certain jobs in these in these um, settings. And one of those, I think, was you worked in the kitchen in the Lewisburg facility, mm-hmm. right? What was that like in terms of, you mentioned pay, of the average pay, but what was that like in terms of your hours and your pay, mm-hmm. your responsibilities? What were you actually doing in the kitchen? And did that give you any more appreciation for the limitations that those serving food had to putting out food that was any better? Um, most people that go into the kitchen go in there to hustle. So you, you do have the opportunity to get more food because you can, you know, you work in there so you can 
do little things like make you some French toast, stuff that may not be on a regular line, you know, for that day's menu. But most people go into the kitchen because now you can sell onions, you can sell green peppers, you can sell broccoli, cauliflower. The things that come into the kitchen, guys go in there and hustle. So they make little breakfasts and dinners and sandwiches and they hustle them. Most in most institutional currency is stamps. So this is way this these are ways that guys supplement their income to be able to get commissary, to use the phone, to use the email. So for me, I was compelled to work in the kitchen because when you go to the federal institutions back then, you had to have a job. Now they you don't it's not that way because they say they don't have the funding to, to give everybody a job. But so I was forced to work in the kitchen. For me, it was good because I worked four in the morning. It gave me uh, a discipline to be able to get up in the morning and um, to be able to rise out of sleep, to be responsible, to be punctual. And I just worked like just cleaning up in the hallways and, you know, in the, in the common area. But what it did for me, it gave me that habit that I have to this day. I can get up in the middle of the night and I can work out and I can handle my responsibilities. Like Warren Buffett and Oprah Winfrey said, they get up four to five hours before the market open at nine. So that's still my philosophy today from working in the kitchen. I get up four or five in the morning and I'm beating the Wall Street bell about four or five hours. So it was good for me from a discipline point. But from a food aspect, I mean, you know, I was able to eat some things, access to fruits and vegetables that most people didn't get that didn't work in the kitchen. But I really didn't use it to hustle. It's, it's so interesting just hearing you say that. I often think the food industry more broadly, people who go into it are the ones who like want access to the best stuff mm-hmm. and, um, you know, just want to have their hands in it so they can eat more yummy. Th- like it, it's a simple human draw. Right. Um, but I also really relate with you about the, the structure and regimen that right. it affords. So I want to talk about, we talked about deprivation mm-hmm. right in the beginning, but I, there's one um, topic that I don't want to miss today. And that's this hot button issue of neutral loaf. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell the listeners just what is neutral loaf and what causes someone to have to eat it in that setting? Wow. So neutral loaf is only given to individuals who find themselves inside of the special housing unit, which is um, a solitary confinement space where they put you for disciplinary reasons. And they give the neutral loaf to people who have caused disturbances with the officers and the staff. So what they do is they take what they say is fruits and vegetables or meat, whatever, who knows, but they grind it up in a blender, cook it into like this one solid piece of look like brick, like a brick. Right. And, um, they give this to you because it's, it's for one thing, they say that you can't throw your food tray and you can't throw your food. And also the reduction of calories brings about a reduction of energy which brings about a reduction in resistance. So a lot of times people who find themselves in solitary confinement are not dead just because of disciplinary reasons, but the disciplinary reasons are a result of their mental illness. Because over 50%, they say statistically, 45 to 50% of the people in carceral spaces are suffering from mental illness. So when you take somebody who is a disruption in a general population because of a mental illness issue that's not addressed, and then you put them in solitary confinement, it only increases their mental illness symptoms. So now they get inside of the cell and then they act out and instead of them bringing the mental health treatment and proper medication, they just further 
you know, uh, uh, enhance their, uh, their, 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 their mental illness suffering. And they act out, and instead of, you know, them treating them, they just take their food away from them. And you, you used a term, you said, you know, they put you in solitary confinement when you start bucking. Right. And I just thought that term was, was not human. Like, mm-hmm. that, that just, that's always been a term that I've heard used to describe animal movements. Right. Um, and, and this has been a legal issue nationwide, mm-hmm. the, the use of this, you know, blended meatloaf of sorts, this disciplinary loaf. A lawsuit two years ago was brought by an inmate claiming he was constructively starved. He said he lost 60 pounds. Um, and this is, you know, big groups of prisoners in Pennsylvania filed a federal civil rights lawsuit um, claiming that their portions in general aren't enough to feed a five-year-old child. So, so... We hear this a lot about how the deprivation causes anger that, that turns to violence. Um, Halim, I want to talk about an, what I think where your passion is in this intersection of, um, of, of the prison setting and food, which is the realization that the poor quality of food that, that you've given so many really specific examples of today is a public safety risk. Can you explain why you think that is? The reason why I say it's a public safety factor is because the majority of people who commit violent offenses, because the majority of people are serving long sentences in America that amongst that 2.8 million that you mentioned, if we are going to reduce mass incarceration, we have to address violent offenders because these are the majority of people that's in state prisons are violent offenders serving long sentences. And the majority of this population are under the age of 25 and some under the age of 18 being charged as adults. So we know now through Supreme Court law and neuroscientific studies that the part of the brain, the prefrontal lobe, that governs impulse control, uh, not being susceptible to negative peer influence and be able to foresee the consequence of your decisions. This part of the brain is not developed for mostly males into the mid to the late 20s. So now you're seeing states like California and even the District of Columbia now extending resentencing early parole uh, privileges for those who committed the offenses under the age of 25 but now when you have the majority of your violent offenders are those who are incarcerated under the age of 25 when you put them in these places especially under the age of 18 and these are the formal years from 16 14 to 25 where the brain and the body is developing and they're not being serviced proper nutritional uh development and nurturing in carceral spaces for those formidable years, you keep them for 20 years, now they're 36, but now their brain is in a state of arrested development because they, their bodies and their brain didn't receive the proper nutrients for it to develop fully. So now then what makes us a public safety factor because we have a recidivism problem in America. Seven out of 10 people, they say, within three to five years, reoffend, mostly technical violations, but some new offenses. So now if we take these, these young human beings, we put them inside of these prisons for decades, and we don't feed them properly in their formidable years. So now the part of the brain that's directly responsible for controlling antisocial behaviors is not developed, and we put them back into the community, then only thing that we have done, we have put them inside of a prison when we deemed them to be minister societies. We didn't address their problems nutritionally or through education and rehabilitative programs, and we put them back into society in that same state of mentality, criminal and cognitive thinking behaviors 
that made them a menace to society. So now when they re-enter society and re-offend and do another violent offense, we want to make it seem like now we need to get tough on laws. We need to get tough on letting people out of prison. But what we really need to do is properly service this population at the beginning, the middle, and the end with proper nutrition, proper education, and proper rehabilitative skills that can make their assimilation back into society effective. The way as though they can be contributing members and not destructive members of our community. And if we don't address that, and we're passing laws now to allow this population to come back to our communities after serving decades, and their minds and their bodies and their brains that's directly responsible for them behaving in a pro-social way is not corrected, then that's going to be a public safety factor. And it's not going to become an issue to somebody from an upper-class part of the city or our communities become a victim of a violent offense by someone who's an ex-felon or out on parole or probation. And then it's going to become an issue. Instead of us addressing it on a, on a, on a rehabilitative way, we're going to resort to being what we are today is strictly punitive. And you, you say they and they. Do you feel that you are affected in this way? Absolutely, because I'm a spiritual creature and I believe that we're all interconnected. So the person who I sold crack to his mother when he was six, seven years old and I was getting the snap welfare that you mentioned earlier, I'm getting his mother snapped on the first of the month for crack that I sold her. He's not probably nutrition. This is the one while I'm in prison that carjacks my mother. You see, so we just all interconnected that way and nobody can get away from our karma. Um, <clears throat> and I just want to underscore the problem because the people that we're talking about get 100% of their meals in this setting. It's not like a hospital or a school or other institutions like a hotel. It's, it's every single, single nutrient. Um, and I will say, you know, there are governments and there are many organizations at this point, we're about to bring Kanov into the conversation, that do acknowledge this correlation um, between food and brain development and recidivism. Uh, for example, I, I know that the Connecticut State Administration under government, Governor Malloy argued that throwing a little bit more money towards the food specifically would save a lot down the line um, by making inmates who rely on state-funded health care after the release more healthy inside and then continuing outside. Um, so that's, that's the kind of reform that, that we obviously need for this really, really serious problem. Kind of thanks for, for listening to us so far. No, of, of course, yeah. Thank you for sharing, Halim. That was, yeah, that was amazing to listen to. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kiko. Absolutely. So I, I know that you also see this issue through a public health lens, and so I think mm -hmm. it's a great point to bring you in. Really briefly, let me just introduce you. Kanav is the co-founder of the Farm to Prison Project, an initiative to change food conditions in prisons in order to humanize individuals affected by the criminal justice system. And Kanav immigrated to the U.S. from India in 2000 and came to Baltimore in 2011. So how did you get started with the Farm to Prison Project, and what is the work of the project right now? I know that's a big question, sure. but give us a um, quick background on your work. Um, so, yeah, I guess briefly, um, the Farm to Prison Project, um, what we do, it's an initiative to change food conditions in prisons, and we're focused on Baltimore and Maryland. Um, and the way we're doing that is by connecting, you know, small-scale urban and larger-scale farms to prisons, uh, in order to improve, as you know, as you were saying, quantity, 
quality, uh, nutritional value, palatability. Um, so yeah, that's 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 the scope of the work. You know, I started um, the project uh, about one year ago in May of 2018 um, with my co-founder uh, Bill Fina, who's a prison abolitionist organizer. You know, she's been active in this space for for many years. Um, and I guess the way that I arrived at this project uh, takes me back uh, to India. As you were saying, you know, I was born in India, moved to the U.S. when I was seven. Um, but I still, you know, visited India every other year. That's where a majority of my family is. And through that, I was able to maintain a cultural uh, identity and relationship with, with, with the country. Um, and, you know, during my trips back, I was exposed to what the criminal justice system in India looks like. And it's just so blatantly broken, like there's corruption on every single level of society. Um, you know, the police exist pretty much just to serve the interests of the rich. Um, the courts take years and years to decide a case. There's a lot of vigilante justice. Um, but, you know, comparing that to the United States, I was, at least at the surface level, I was just so shocked at how things seem to be working well here, um, you know, in my young years. Um, you know, there wasn't that blatant bribery and corruption. Um, things just seemed to be, um, yeah, much more, much more functional. Um, and if you ask someone in India, you know, if, if what the biggest problem is with, or what a problem is with the criminal justice system, like everyone's going to give you the same answer, right? It's, it's completely broken. But over here, that's not the case. Um, so the more I learned, um, you know, from growing up in the U.S. about mass incarceration, the more I developed, the more like anti-capitalist analysis, uh, racial analysis, um, developed that language, um, the more I saw the similarities between the two countries and how they're really not that, that different after all. Um, so, you know, as I was developing, as I was saying, my analysis and, you know, uh, Baltimore, you know, you, you have a very clear and detailed understanding of the role that police play, of the role that the um, criminal justice system, the courts, the prisons play, um, in maintaining a, a racialized status quo, um, you know, this all culminated in a, in a trip I took to Montgomery last year um, with a few friends to, you know, Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative, that, that memorial opening. And it was then where I started doing um, a much more detailed research into the prison industrial complex and specifically, you know, who's profiting off of it, right? So I came across, you know, the, the bail bonds industry, telecommunications, um, healthcare, insurance, and food. And I realized there really wasn't that much information available about food. You know, there's so much um, regarding food in schools and hospitals and restaurants everywhere, but there really wasn't that much about prisons and, and very little in Baltimore specifically, which is where, you know, where I'm living. Um, so it started out almost as a research project with the intent to, to change um, so I really was trying to understand, you know, from a top to bottom level, from, you know, all the way from purchasing and procurement to uh, what, a, what a cooked meal looks like in front of an incarcerated individual, how that process works, um, with the goal, of course, being the, being the change. And, you know, the more I learned, the more conversations I had with formerly incarcerated individuals, with the State uh, Department, with farmers, um, the more that this idea began to take shape and grow. And you mentioned that your partner is a prison abolitionist, mm -hmm. and I had not heard that term before speaking with you. Sure. I'd love you to share with our listeners what you mean when you talk about coming to this work through an abolitionist perspective. Sure. Um, so the two, I guess the two somewhat schools of thought are, you know, reform versus abolition. And uh, I will say that there's a lot, a lot of amazing people out there who have written and, you know, 
progress the abolitionist movement. So I would definitely recommend, you know, um, reading them, you know, Angela Davis, uh, Ruth, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, Miriam Kaba, the organization Critical Resistance, and they can provide a much better explanation and analysis, you know, as the, um, as the forefront of this movement. But um, loosely, um, you know, in my perspective, right, the, the language that we have these days around mass incarceration is pretty well documented, right? The U.S. incarcerates people at a higher rate per capita than any other developed countries, right? It's mostly poor communities that are targeted, black communities, brown communities. Um, but what abolition doesn't mean is not just, you know, let's just shut down all the prisons. It, it, if, it actually addresses a much larger question of, you know, as, as Halim, you were saying before, what is the role of um, prisons in our society today? And it's not to rehabilitate, you know, it's not to provide that, that nurture, that love, that support, that skills that people need. Uh, in order to survive, it just exists as a place to dehumanize, to punish, and uh, you know perpetuate the harm and the exact same conditions that lead people to prison in the first place. So prison abolition goes beyond the walls of prison, and you know it really seeks to reshape society and address the you know the root issues um, that cause crime, which is a symptom, right, in the first place, such that we can um, you know challenge the the necessity and challenge the purpose of prison uh, in the first place. So abolition really is, it's, um, you know, it's a practical organizing tool and as well as, um, you know, a, a larger vision of what do we want our society to look like and how do we build that society starting today. Um, so tying it back um, to the Farm to Prison project, um, you know, of course, one of our goals is to change food conditions because, and, and that would be, you know, reform, but I think we obviously understand the immediate and deep urgent uh, need to change food conditions in prisons, but we're also trying to change consciousness, right, by, by serving, you know, nutritious, wholesome foods to incarcerated individuals. Um, we're, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's humanizing, right? It's a humanization tool, and it's that humanization that's a critical step uh, to moving society um, away from what prisons today look like. Uh, so that's what I mean, you know, when I say it's an abolitionist project. And, yeah, once again, lots of resources out there. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of my language from, from Bilfina as well. From who? Bilfina, my okay. co-founder. Oh, your, your co-founder. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I couldn't agree more that food is just such a relatable bridge mm -hmm. um, and that there is so much momentum behind the food movement um, in other sectors that you've mentioned and that, that it will hopefully be the tool, the practical tool, as you say, that's needed to um, for more understanding, mm -hmm. so why Baltimore? Um, so Baltimore is where I, you know, where I studied. Um, I've been living there on and off since 2011, um, and I mean, I do think it's really, really amazing city. I think uh, the people working in the city are—they're um, extremely inspiring. The the climate and the work that's being done in the city is also very inspiring and. Um, I guess looking at Baltimore compared to the rest of the state, um, the food in Baltimore's prisons are by far worse than, than anywhere else in the state. And I, don't know if that was, I don't know if that was the case with D.C. jail versus, you know, Virginia and whatnot, but at least in Baltimore, um, you know, there's not that much access to, to the resources that, you know, more rural Maryland has. Um, plus, you know, it's a lot of bag lunch, as you were saying, Halim, it's a lot of logistics it's a lot of trying to get 
all this food to people who are coming in and out of, you know, central booking and a few jails in the area. And there's only, you know, one or two kitchens for five or six institutions uh, in all of Baltimore. Um, so our ultimate goal is to, you know, we're, we're starting more in Maryland and, you know, piloting there in order to build you know, some type of scope of work and then bring that to Baltimore where the need is by far the greatest. And what misconceptions do you think people on the outside have had that maybe you had also before you started all the interviews you've been doing with mm-hmm. women at MCIW that we'll talk about in a moment about how food is on the inside versus the reality? Um, so I think, I, I guess if we were to talk about misconceptions, um, Regarding the actual meals in Baltimore City Jail, I kind of, before starting this project, I assumed that the quantity um, was bad and the quality was bad, but just from, you know, doing my own research, I thought that there would be some type of nutritional value there, um, which is just which is just not the case. You know, the quantity is, is worse than what I could have imagined. The quality is worse than I could have imagined. You know, just speaking to all the people that I have, you know, it's just the one word that keeps coming up is just horrible. Like, you know, people would not wish this upon anyone. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to note, you know, the trajectory of how prisons came to exist in the first place, right? It's a direct product of slavery, then convict leasing, and now, you know, the prison system and food, the food that we as a society serve to, to people inside is a reflection of that. So going back to this notion of prison food, or the the inadequacy of prison food as a public health issue. Mm -hmm. Just kind of like I asked Halim to explain why he sees it that way. Why do you see it in that light? Yeah, so I think, Halim, you covered a lot of, you know, what what I was thinking as well, right? It is a public health issue in the sense that, you know, we have, we have, a huge, you know, percentage of of population in a prison not being fed in a way that, you know, provides mental well-being, emotional well-being, physical well-being, right? In some prisons, um, even though, you know, some portions might be less, the the obesity rate is really going up because it's just a whole lot of starch. Um, There's not enough protein. There's, you know, very, very little fresh fruits and vegetables, if at all. It's mostly canned. It's mostly um, frozen. So the palatability is, is, of course, not as not as good you know there's some instances where the food is spoiled or moldy or there's maggots and you know um, rice uh, rat droppings and mice droppings and whatnot as well so in terms of um, to touch on recidivism as you were saying right like we're not really I mean we're not at all providing incarcerated individuals with any of the support whether it's nutritional whether it's rehabilitative um, that they need in order to then you know return to society it's just it's just perpetuation and to loop back on, you know, what you were saying about obesity, that is leading to so much diet-related disease. Mm-hmm. You know, just one stat that I want to share is a report in 2016 from the Bureau of Justice that 44% of people who are incarcerated suffer from the diet-related illnesses of diabetes, hypertension, and high blood mm-hmm. pressure um, that they'll take with them when they walk out of the yep. prison. And, and that close to three quarters were considered obese um, and with, the, with women more likely to be in that category. Mm-hmm. And of course, women who are pregnant during their incarceration, I mean, talk about a vulnerable time to, to lack those nutrients. Um, so what, it's just so ironic that we have problems at total opposite ends of the spectrum, the starvation problem or deprivation, and then the over... The over um, 
the over serving or what's the phrase I'm looking for? The it's not the over serving, it's just the, the, the type. Yeah, the, the empty calories. The empty, empty calories. calories. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women for a second, kind of, because sure. I know that you're intimately um, able to, to get a window into the um, experience of being there and that you've been interviewing women there. So that's in Jessup, Maryland, not far from here. And there were articles recently about how the warden had noticed a problem, that there was this, this um, you know, problem of women leaving a lot heavier than when they entered. And they realized that women were being served the same food as male prisoners of, you know, let's say double their weight. So that was a 3,200 calorie diet filled with carbs, as we've talked about. And so they took measures to change it. You know, they apparently uh, worked with a dietitian to cut out about a thousand calories a day. They said that they replaced white bread with wheat bread. They added fish and fresh fruit and vegetables and cottage cheese and yogurt. They serve drinks with less sugar. Have you heard about these improvements from the women that are living there? Um, so to be clear, I haven't been interviewing people currently at MCIW. Oh, okay, it's I'm all sorry. been people, uh, both women and men, um, who are you know who have returned. Got um, it. Okay. So a lot of the women I've been speaking to, they've been out for you know like three, four, five years. Got it. So I think the the improvements that are being made now, um, you know, they might be after all of the um, the experiences of the people that I've been interviewing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all I can, I can really say. That there. makes sense. Okay, so I was misinformed on that. Um, and, and, you know, there is this problem, I think, also of lack of right-sizing for the population in the prison. For example, a lot of the meat that's being served is being replaced by soy and in facilities that are largely... Um, having men there, that's an amount of estrogen that is, that is seen as, as dangerous. Um, so, you know, I want to kind of shift now because what we've heard today is that when people are charged with serving food to a population that doesn't have a choice, there are decisions that are made based on money and based on convenience and based on the other selfish human drivers that, that put vulnerable incarcerated people's health and human dignity at risk. And Halim, when we spoke before today's interview, you were very clear with me. You said, my intention is we need to make this action-oriented. You said, I don't want to do an interview that makes people sad or leaves people sad or sorry. I want to give listeners practical steps. And so I want to make that shift right now in the time we have together to talk about areas for improvement. Um, you know, there are, there are, there are improvements that I've been able to research the New York department of corrections, eliminating neutral loaf in 2015, um, Pennsylvania replacing neutral loaf with bag meals. But, you know, apparently that's only so much of an improvement. Halim, first of all, what did you see an improvement in the quality of food over the 22 years that you were, that you were in the system? Well, I left D.C. jail and I came, I entered D.C. jail in 97 at the age of 16. I left and went to the prison system in 98. I came back on a writ before my release in March. I came back in May 2018. And the food at D.C. jail and CTF are far worse than it was when I left in the 90s. Because now they don't even serve fish, 
chicken, none of that no more. Everything now is just soy. So back then, at least you got fish on Fridays, chicken on Thursday, hamburger on Wednesday. Now everything is just soy and it looks like slop dog food. I can't and now they do uh, lunch meat sandwiches every day too. So back then they they didn't do that. So the the cold meal is the bologna, the lunch meat. The hot meal is they never could have got away with that. In the nineties, it would have been a riot. It's it's no way they could the way that they feeding people to jail now. Is it was it was no way in the nineties when DC was the murder capital and the majority of the people that was locked up was locked up for murder, facing life sentences that they would accept the way that they are being fed now. Do you have anything to add on that note, Kanov? I think I've heard similar things, as you're saying, and I think it comes down to the budget. Right in Maryland, you have about $2 to $5 uh, per person per day, you know, for all three meals. So, of course, it's going to be cold lunches. Of course, it's going to be, you know, lunch meat, sweaty meat, you know, whatever. Um, I think... When you're working on that budget, and you you were talking about Airmark before, like it's the tier of food that that people can uh, afford to provide as well. And I think, you know, people offload their third rate, fourth rate quality goods onto prisons um, because of that reason too. And you know, there is a consciousness there, of course, as well, right? That you know, people who are incarcerated aren't you know deserving of eating well. So why should we you know provide that that high quality food? Um, but at least from what I've heard and seen in Maryland, yeah, it's, it's all about the, the budget. Another thing I wanted to say, too, is that the older prisoners that was incarcerated when I came inside the system was from the 70s and 80s. And they was raised in the 60s, 50s and 60s and 70s. So these were individuals who were either children of or directly involved in the civil rights and the black power movement era. Mm. So... They tend to be more educated than the guys coming in now, and they engage in more civil litigation, which become known as you know, which is known as jailhouse lawyers. So nowadays, a lot of young people that's coming to prison now, they don't have that activist spirit. So they look at it like it's wrong for you to write a grievance up and file a lawsuit on what's going on with the prison conditions, whereas though. Those guys, when you study the, uh, the history of those who were incarcerated in the 60s and 70s and 80s, they were more active in litigating in the federal courts to change the conditions. So in the 60s and 70s, especially after the, uh, the Attica rise, you see an improvement of incarcerated conditions. But as the crack era comes, you get away from that, 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 that spirit of resistance in our communities now you just have a population that have no frame of reference with being civically engaged and seeing that in their communities. So when they come inside of a carceral space, they don't know and they don't, they, they don't have the capacity, they don't have the willingness or the uh, uh, example of how to resist through litigation. That's fascinating. And are you at all seeing that pendulum swing back the other way as social consciousness, Black Lives Matter, any movements galvanize bigger swaths of society recently? Or is it still, you know, um, maybe the, the belief that, that litigating from the inside will make any difference is, is still not there and, and people aren't organizing in that way from the inside? Well, I've seen it recently, not locally, but um, 
in in like 10 states like last year they went on hunger strikes and you know about the prison conditions so mm-hmm. i'm seeing it nationally it's just that locally maybe i wasn't there long enough because i was only back for 10 months but i didn't see it locally mm-hmm. not unless it was from the guys like me who were back on the rip who had did over 20 years and was trying to educate the younger guys about the spirit of activism and civic engagement mm-hmm. but I'm not seeing it locally, but I'm seeing it nationally, though. I think in addition to that, Halim, what I've also read, I think uh, back in the 90s, didn't they try to make it much harder for people to even, like, have that litigation? Like, mm-hmm. I think it was called, like, the PLRA or the PR, right. Exactly. right, where they made, like, you have to pay a fee to file this, you have to do this, you have to do that. And they right. took the Pell Grant so right. that you couldn't right. pursue right. higher right. education right. while right. you were incarcerated. So I feel like right. the state realized that, you know, these things are working because it has to come from the courts, and then they try to curb that that possibility as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So from for each of you from where you sit, what is the, what what would you, you know, set advocates out to work on as it relates to food in prisons? What is the priority f- that, that you would kind of guide them to work on improving? Well, Which fir- piece of all this? The first thing, like, as soon as I leave here, I'm going to um, a meeting with the, Na- the Nelson Mandela Democrat uh, club and this is a, a a local caucus that's formed they want to become a caucus but this will be a political body that's organized and ran by dc returning citizens which the population is known to be seventy thousand. and then if you put that with their loved ones and their relatives could take it over a hundred thousand so in dc as well as now in maryland which recently uh, changed their law returning citizens in in in, in maryland when they finish their probation or parole i believe but in dc as soon as you release you can vote so i believe the main focus of the activism has to come from the returning citizens from us and the uniqueness about dc what i love is that we're not at the mercy of the legislative or the elected representatives we can do our own ballot initiatives so if we have a block of seventy thousand returning citizens that can vote and we can scale that from their loved ones who they can influence to vote with them, we can create our own ballot initiatives to change the things that we want to change locally if the elected representatives don't want to be persuaded by our uh, voting abilities. So we're not at the mercy of elected representatives. We can actually create our own laws. And, and if the, the ballot initiative and the movement is going to come from you as you say then what do you want people like me or Kanov to do to, um, to, to be with you oh definitely to um, to support it because it's going to take a joint effort we would need you to sign the, uh, the ballot initiative because you need a certain amount of uh, voters sure. from each, each ward and also one thing I want to encourage the listeners to do today is to go online to get the email addresses of all the 13 D.C. city council members and the mayor and email them and explain to them in your email that you are concerned with this issue and you want to see this issue addressed by the Judiciary and Public Safety Committee, which is now headed by D.C. Uh, Ward 6 council member Charles Allen. And the reason why I say this is because when they changed the law, that I ultimately was released from the law initially when it was written wasn't retroactive. So it wasn't going to apply to juveniles that had been in for 20 years. But through me emailing the city council and getting people to email, engaging in civic engagement from prison, 
I know that those that's out of prison and those that's in the community, we can definitely be more influential than those that's on the inside. So just emailing the city council and the mayor and going to the, um, the local um, meetings that they have, the city council members for the Judiciary and Public Safety Committee, and be present and be heard. And I know that you have been advocating in that setting. I've seen pictures of you on the, on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. What about you, Kanov? Um, so I would say two things. Uh, one, um, supporting supporting returning citizens, supporting individuals with direct experience, whether it's through organizing, activism, um, you know, just being that that set of hands that that people need um, in whatever form that takes. Um, the second, you know, I think I would just say. You know, as I was talking about earlier, just rethinking the role of prison in society as a whole and educating oneself. There's a ton of resources online. Um, You know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore just released this article on the New York Times, you know, a few weeks ago. I think that's probably the most accessible. Um, And, you know, really thinking about um, how prison has come to shape in this country, you know, giving the, as you were saying, the Scandinavia example, I feel like, you know, a lot of times that's not that's not a comparison we can make too well just because what's missing is intent right intent of why the prison system in the u.s looks the way it does you know it didn't come up by chance and in scandinavia it's a very different i think landscape in terms of you know um recognizing each human's uh humanity um for lack of a better word but yeah i'd say um just educating oneself would be the second thing the ruth wilson gilmore article you mentioned is 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 called what or about what if we want to look it up, um, what's I forget the, I forget the name of it to be honest, but it's on the New York Times. I think if one just Google's Ruth Wilson Gilmore, okay. New York Times, it just came out like a few weeks ago. I'm blanking on the title. All right, I'm and also to... read uh, Angela, like he mentioned earlier, read Angela Davis books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, She's very informative. What's your favorite, Halim? I admittedly haven't read any of them. I can't even remember the. Uh, oh, what is freedom mm-hmm. and. Our prison's obsolete. Our prison's obsolete. Yeah, that's a big yeah. one. Asada, you know, every, there's, yeah. And what about the, the, the favorite book from Helene Flowers? What, what should <laughs> listeners um, pick up from what, your 10 titles? Correction, 11 titles. 11, 11 titles. titles. So the, um, all of the books available when you search my name, Helene Flowers, H-A-L-I-M, Flowers, F-L-O-W-E-R-S, at Amazon.com. And my favorite title is uh, Makings of a Menace, Contrition of a Man, which is my autobiography, my memoir about the things that made me a menace to society, and, you know, through the um, cultural influences and what influences made me um, contrite remorse for uh, my destructive behaviors and led to me to uh, rehabilitate myself so that I can be out now in the community and be doing the work to build where I once destroyed. And that's not because of prison. That I was rehabilitated. That was a, uh, a self-determined course. And present offered me little to no resources to um, fulfill that vision because they were always would tell me you can't get in this program or that program because you have life. So. And you were recently awarded a really prestigious um, fellowship, the Echoing Green Fellowship, that is allowing you to focus on social justice via black male achievement, right? Well, I'm, I, well, I'm actually a finalist, and I'm just waiting to get okay, confirmation. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm, confirmation. I'm hopeful. I'm right. hopeful and But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I, I, I would get it. And um, also, I applied for the House on uh, Social Arts Fellowship, so I'm confident that I, I would get those and, and just use the resources to um, to scale the work because it more it need to be more people 
inside of these, you know, uh, organizations from philanthropists that have direct experience. And I mentioned that to the people at Arnold Ventures because you're, you're, you're putting so much money into the criminal justice space and community development space, but you have no one on your staff that was incarcerated or that was a criminal or that's from a impoverished, uh, highly crime-infested community. So I think it's just it's those who have the direct experience who are formally educated, college educated, have degrees, PhDs, are not represented enough at the table when these decisions get made that affect the carceral uh, population, carcerated population. Any, any last um, action, call to action from you, Kana, before we close up today? <laughs> um, I think that was it. Okay. And as you're saying, have the work be guided by individuals with direct experience, always. And I just kind of want to end on an, an inspiring note from my perspective of just having met the two of you and talked to you, Halim. You know, when we talked on the phone, you were on your first vacation since mm-hmm. your release, right? You were in New York City and you were in the process of using chopsticks for the first time mm-hmm. since you were a kid. And you said, you know, the last time I think I used these, I was a kid trying to be as cool as Jackie Chan. Right. Um, Not a karate kid. I think it's a karate <laughs> kid move. The original karate kid. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which I have never seen. So embarrassing. Um, and you talked about how you were at a vegan brunch and you're eating vegan sushi with these chopsticks. Um, and it's just so clear to me that your passion for health is, is a huge part of your life. Um, and I just want to raise that because you share that with many people who are in the situation we've been talking about today. And your point about how you would have wanted strawberries and dates and bananas when you were in there is really, is just something I want to underscore. Um, so we mentioned um, Halim's books, um, his website that he created, and it's a really great website with his partner, Kristen, is called unchangedstories.org. Uh, I, I think that, Halim, you're really active on Instagram, at Halim Flowers. Kana, is the best place to follow Farm to Prison Project for now Instagram, or where should people keep up with your project? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a question I'm trying to answer. Um, we're in the early stages of developing a website. So in the next two two months, it should be up. So for now, um, hang tight. But yeah, something's coming. Okay. Yeah. All right. If if you send me anything, I will put it out there. Appreciate it. To my many many followers. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but I'll I'll do my best. Appreciate it. And thank you all for for sticking with us. This was maybe the longest episode I've had, but I think it's needless to say one that we could have talked a lot more about. Uh, in next week's issue. In next week's episode of, of Lunch Agenda, we'll continue learning about food on the inside as we talk with an ethnographer about the issues of food and identity as it's affected, as well as a formerly incarcerated entrepreneur whose business, which is called Inside Out Bar, sprang from his experience while in prison. Um, it'll be the last episode I'm hosting for Lunch Agenda this year because I'm about to leave for a little maternity leave as I prepare to welcome my second child. So. Um, Next week, I will also, if you stick through that episode, tell you about the top-notch guest hosts I'll have who will keep you entertained during uh, the rest of the year and shine lights on new areas of our food system while I'm gone. So please um, join me next week. Thank you again. This is Kiko. You joined us for Lunch Agenda. And uh, thank you, Halim. Thank you, Kanav. 
Thank you. Thank Bye. you all, and um, talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.